It's Trailblazers, electronic pioneers brought to you in association with Skiddle. And this time round, we talk to a house music legend recorded in January 2021, Roger Sanchez. Such a lovely guy. Actually, you know, everybody that we've talked to has been so nice. It's lovely meeting all these legends, isn't it? And they're all such wonderful human beings. And Roger Sanchez is another one that ticks that joy box. Welcome, dear friends, to another episode of Trailblazers, a new season. My name is Eddie Temple-Morris, and by my side, as ever, XL Recordings and Positiva founder, Nick Hawks. Together, each time we delve into the lives of some of dance music's brightest luminaries to talk about the cultural fires they started and to play some of the tunes that soundtracked their fascinating lives. Today's Trailblazer was born in the Big Apple in the original Summer of Love, and he's taken that love around the world and spread it via turntables and remixes. This man has remixed so many hit artists that his CV stretches from here in London to a small cheese shop in the suburbs of Paris. As a house music DJ, he's an American legend, much loved both here and in Europe, where he's held a residency in Ibiza for the last 20 years. You can't say you're a house nut until you've been off your nut dancing to the beat of his drums. Grammy winner, Stealth Records head honcho, UK chart topper, and all-round sexy badger, Roger Sanchez. Welcome <laughs> to Trailblazers. It's the thank you. It's the sexy badger thing. <laughs> As I'm getting my black and white beard on, the older I get. <laughs> I was hoping you'd like that. What's going on, gentlemen? <laughs> Lovely to have you on, man. So it's a, the tradition is for Nick to fire the first question at you. So let's not break tradition. All right. Well, thank you, Eddie. Well, well first of all, we're doing this uh, via the wonders of Zoom. It, it's lockdown in the UK. Uh, I can see you, Rog, and you're looking, you're looking great. You're looking very well. And it's brilliant to have you here. I, I'm wondering what a typical day is like for you at the moment. Are you in Miami right now, perhaps? I'm in Miami now, and I have to say, probably one of the better places to be during this lockdown period of time. And, you know, I'm originally from New York, born and raised in Queens, and then I've lived for many years in Manhattan and then into New Jersey. And about three now, yeah, about three years ago, I moved to Miami, change of life and everything. And what I have to say is that you know, obviously, as with everyone, last March, things came to a crashing halt. And not to downplay the severity of the impact of what COVID has had, but I also like to look at the silver linings of every cloud. Now, what, what it's done for me is it's allowed me to kind of stay in one place. And, you know, I, I keep wondering, I'm like, I always ask God, you know what, I would love to have a few months at home so I can work on some music, so on and so forth, because my tour schedule tends to be very intense. And of course, you know, the universe sent back, sure, have a whole lot of time to stay home. But what that's done for me is it's allowed me to kind of be able to take better care of myself, make time for the gym. Um, so generally, my typical day is get up in the morning, have a coffee. I've gotten into fasting intermittently as well as uh, once a month, I'll either do a one or a three-day fast. Um, and what that then has helped me along with intermittent fasting and going to the gym regularly is to drop about 34 pounds, which I really am happy to never see again. But to <laughs> train myself in being consistent. So it's get up. I've got a small, I've been working on building my studio during lockdown. We couldn't get anything done, but now Florida is a bit more open than a lot of other places in the world. 
So I my studio is close to at least having the control room done, but I've set up a little spot in, in my apartment with my partner and my girlfriend, Kristen Knight. I have a little production studio where I do my graffiti paintings as well as work on music. And then I have a live stream space where I've been doing my live streams on Patreon and uh, a couple of other platforms. But basically, it's get up, train, have lunch or brunch as you will. I try to eat a little bit later in the day and just generally be productive. Try to make the most of every minute and every hour of the day. I've definitely caught up on everything there is on Netflix that I need to catch (laughs) up on. But I try not to spend too much time in front of the TV. And obviously, I think we all, when lockdown happened, crashed in front of our couches because that was all we could do. But I picked up I started getting really deeper into my graffiti art. So I've actually have a, a, an actual art show coming up in February uh, with a local artist named Miguel Paredes, who's very big in the scene, who's invited me to not only do music at this art event, but to show my pieces. And it's going to be, you know, it's one of the things that I've been working on during this lockdown period is expanding my art side of things, basically keeping busy, man. That's really good that you've been so positive. You know, we have, looking at it positively, we've been given the gift of time. And reflection. They, yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know you know what they say, you, lockdown turns you into either a, a hunk, a chunk, or a drunk. So nice that you've, <laughs> you've gone full chunk with this. Actually, you know what? I've got, just listening to your, uh, to your morning regime, I've got a tip for you, Roger. And this is slightly cheeky, but I mean it with, this is coming from a place of love. I'm, uh, for my sins, I, I've been working through lockdown every day. It hasn't, hasn't changed me professionally because I'm on the radio every day. And uh, on Virgin Radio's fantastic breakfast show last week, there was this wonderful scientist who's just written this book called The Science of Living. And he said that for many and complicated uh, scientific chemical reasons, don't have your cup of coffee as soon as you wake up. Wait for an hour and then you will get the full benefit of the caffeine hit and you, huh. and you won't get in the way I think it's to do with what's it's. I think it's to do with cortisol and uh, and other chemicals that you don't want to be messing with too. You don't want to be encouraging too much because they set off a lot of uh, inflammatory things in your body. And he said that you know, as a life hack, that's that is a really good life hack for you. That's brilliant. And there's actually one thing that I did forget to mention that I've been doing it. I was been I've been infrequent about it in the beginning, but I started adding it on more regularly. Is I actually take time to do 15 minutes of meditation in the morning which I find has really allowed me to, uh, and it's funny, I had so many people tell me for this for years, meditate, and I'm like, okay, whatever. It's very hippy-dippy. No, it's not. Literally 15 minutes of meditation, allowing yourself to kind of just still and quiet in the morning gives you an almost laser-sharp focus on moving forward towards a day. And I've been using that. And I think I like the idea of, of delaying the coffee hit for an hour. Yeah, I tend to do it first thing as I get up, grab the cup of coffee, but I'm, I'm going to try that. It is the traditional thing to do. And I did it for years up until, I, up until I gave up caffeine. But that's interesting you talk about meditation. Now, I've, this is something I've been doing for seven or eight years, absolutely religiously. I do it twice a day, 20 minutes a time, twice a day. So what kind of meditation is, is this like a a mantra thing or like a mindfulness thing or a guided one? What, what are you doing? Well, I, I have a couple of different ones that I do. I do guided meditations. I've been watching a lot of um, Joe, Dr. Joe Dispenza's shows on Gaia, and he's, he's been very in, uh, informative in terms of different types of meditations that he's been espousing. So transcendental, yes, definitely. 
And sometimes it is mindfulness. There are also guys like Wim Hof that do the uh, the breathing meditation. And those are guided. Those are actually kind of intense, but in terms of breathing, holding your breath, and then cycling through breath, and then his cold plunge things are pretty intense. And, and I've tried a bit of that. So all of these different practices I started incorporating into my regular kind of weekly, daily regime. And I find that they've had a really positive impact just on my overall health. And obviously, especially during this time, I think one of the things that hasn't been talked about enough by uh, the kind of more global community is the impact of making sure that your own personal health is at its peak quality that it possibly can be to prevent you from succumbing to things like COVID. Thankfully, I haven't had it. I actually had my first shot of the vaccine. I'm due in for another one on the 9th. But throughout this entire time, as I'm sure many of us have, I'm sure I've come into contact with people unknowingly, even though I've been protecting myself as much as possible. And I've been fine the entire time. So I think that really does have an overall impact on your state of mindfulness, sleep, as well as just your overall physical well-being. Yeah, that's fascinating that you've mentioned Wim Hof as well. You're a man after my own heart, Roger. I've been doing Wim Hof for five years and I can swear by it. I've met Wim. We were planning a festival together here in the UK that obviously got um, got spiked by COVID. But you are chemically... At the peak of your game now, if you're doing all of those things, you know, you've got all of this dopamine and you're you're triggering your adrenal gland to produce epinephrine. Exactly. You're in this caveman kind of uh, fight or flight with any any viruses that are around. You're in you you might you're chemically in great shape, I can testify to that. I'm doing my best to be in warrior mode. And, and it's <laughs> interesting. Like that plus training, boxing, and all of these other things that I've really reincorporated into my life have brought me back to a physical condition of kind of being almost like in my early 20s, which is how I'm feeling right now, except my knees, because I've got torn meniscuses from years of like martial arts from when I was younger, which I'm taking care of now. But even that feels way better. So all these things have really allowed me to be in a much better and more productive state, especially during this period of time, which has been so challenging for everyone. And these things are so, they're so beneficial to your mental health as well. The mental health of, uh, of busy DJs is a, is a much documented fact. You know, how, how have you been, you know, because like through your career and how have you coped with the perils and pitfalls that have, have seen, you know, some of your colleagues do the unthinkable? Well, you know, there's been a lot of, over the past few years, there have been quite a few cases actually of, the uh, the isolation of touring that really hasn't been something that people talked about. And generally, you know, DJs and the like who are very successful are kind of looked at like the, living the life of Riley and having the best of everything. What's not talked about is the isolation that a lot of people do face on the road. You know, for my own part, I think I have the benefit that I don't, I've never done drugs, weirdly enough. And I'm I don't really drink very much. Uh, that's just been a constant throughout my life, which has allowed me to kind of maintain uh, a bit more of a balanced outlook on things. It doesn't mean that I haven't had a lot of pressure, uh, personal life and the isolation of touring. I, I, I kind of put 
my mental fortitude down to several things. When I was very young, I did military training, Marine Corps training, which kind of put a certain mindset to me. Uh, I have people that I've I started touring fairly early on in my 20s when touring really first started for DJs coming from the US to the UK. So I, I've been doing this for such a long time that I've built my mental structure of how I deal with road life. And for me, it's almost like a parallel universe to what I call the real world. And I kind of reconnect. But it's been very important for me to maintain connections to the real world, for lack of a better explanation, and not allow my own self-worth and value to be dictated by accolades or external views of accomplishments. And that's something that a lot of us fall victim to, especially when you're on the road all the time. And most people see you in the high moments when you're DJing, but it's the travel within where you're completely disconnected. And basically you have to rely on your phone or whatever have you, you take somebody on tours. I've had various tour managers over the years, but you lose connection with people. So making sure that you do try to maintain some of those connections has been very important for me over the years. But having this mental outlook of understanding that who I am is not dictated by what I do. What I do is an extension of who I am. And really having your own self-value is incredibly important to helping combat the side effects of the isolationism that happens when you're on tour. Because, you know, bands are a little bit different. There's a group and you kind of have this like this ecosystem that you tour with when you have that level of success. As a DJ, you more often than not might have one person that's consistently with you, but you spend a lot of time in your head. As somebody who paints and draws and also creates music, I live a lot in my head. So I'm very familiar with that topography. So I'm pretty comfortable there. Some people are not. And I think the cracks begin to show, especially when you start introducing chemicals into the mix and just kind of avoiding that has been really helpful for me. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting, the stuff you say. I want to know, uh, before we scroll it back and, and listen to some music, how has your relationship with your fans changed over the last sort of year or so? Because I guess, you know, two years, three years ago, a lot of your fan engagement is you're on stage, people are reaching over, they're shaking your hand, oh, mate, blah, blah. now, none of that. And so can you talk us through how the relationship has changed? Have you taken some steps to, to remain engaged in a positive way with your, with your fan base? Absolutely. I think, well, nothing ever replaces the actual human contact. So I think that's the first thing to understand that that knowing that we were going to be locked away and once we came to terms with that as a as a global community the creativity for connection really started um expanding now what i've been doing over the past year you know obviously social media has been very important but i think it became uber important over this past year because that became almost the primary way to connect with people zoom calls and obviously your facebooks your instagrams Fortunately, I've, I've been very active on my social media platforms. Since then, I've introduced Patreon. It's something that I started a few months ago 
I've been developing slowly this kind of close-knit community. I have certain VIPs that I do a Zoom call with once a month. I keep that number limited to uh, maximum 20 people. And I do my live streams that I do different monthly live streams where I interact with people on the platform. I've been using uh, Patreon and then FutureStream through them to connect with the fans. It's definitely much more limited in scope, but there is a much more direct connection to my fans. I've been trying out different platforms. I've done stuff on Twitch. So using the social media platforms and then cre- and then using this more fan-based platforms like Patreon and Bandcamp, I've been able to, interestingly enough, draw some people in closer. Now, it's not the same um, range at this moment. I don't know if I can handle that, quite honestly, time-wise, as let's say when I'm touring and I'm shaking hands, but those are very short interactions with people. Generally now through my live streams and through these other type of platforms, I've begun engaging fans almost in a more direct way than ever before. Great. Okay. Well, I mean, it's interesting to hear you mention Patreon. It's not a platform that I've heard uh, crop up that much with artists of your level, but I get it. Well, actually, what I think will happen, at least this is how I'm trying to direct how I plan to use Patreon in the future. When I get back on tour, the really loyal Patreon customers will be our VIP inner circle. So. The idea is if I'm touring in your town and you're a a Patreon VIP, I'll put you on my guest list. We can have meet and greets. So what happens is there will be more in-person contact. But for the time being, I think it's this the reason why I started doing it. I, I saw the different type of artists that were starting to work on the platform. And I knew it's going to be slow growth in the very beginning. But depending on what's being offered on the platform when we get back on tour, I could still remain engaged by providing content for the platform. But now also the people that are on the platform, when I'm in your town, you will have access that's, you know, preferential as opposed to kind of, you know, your kind of standard ticket buyer. Got it. You'll bring the higher level of engagement into the into the real world. Right. One thing that strikes me in this conversation is we could quite easily do a couple of hours without hearing a single note of music. <laughs> do, do you agree with that, Eddie? Yeah, absolutely. This is, I talk uh, a lot. In terms, of, yeah, in terms of conversation, this is going fantastically well. Before we go down another, yes, another fascinating wormhole, let's wind this right back to, uh, yes. to I presume, to Queen's. In New York, yes. where you were, where you were born, and and to your earliest kind of musical awakenings, you know, when when did you start becoming aware of music? What was happening? What was it like for you growing up? Did you come from a musical family? That kind of thing. Well, it's interesting because coming from a Latin background, my parents are both from the Dominican Republic. Music is is woven into the fabric of our lives, and I grew up in Queens. Uh, my early years in New York City, and it's weird, you know, New York is a melting pot, so many different cultures, but especially when you have Latin culture, music is kind of front and center. That plus being exposed to, you know, American radio, I can remember listening to Little 45s when I was like five years old. I think one of my earliest memories of this record called the chocolate choo-choo train or something like that. I just have that burned in my memory, a little 45. And I loved that 
that record when I was a kid. I think I must have been no older than four or five years old. But then just, you know, music has always been part of the DNA of my life. And it's, it's you know, that and art. So the two really have started very early on in my life. And can you uh, pinpoint a tune that first thing that kind of you had a real emotional attachment to or that had an emotional effect on you? I think it probably was the Jackson 5 ABC song because uh, I just, it was weird uh, for me because that song also to me tied into learning. So it was that rhythmic, very nursery rhyme ABC one, two, three, which at that point in time, I think the song originally came out in 1970, but I remember listening to it when I was like four or five years old as well, and just kind of really being connected and dancing to it. And that was kind of like the thing for me. And it was just like numbers and letters. And it, it, it really connected with me the, the resonance of music and everything else in life. Brilliant. Well, Eddie, should we just stick that wonderful piece of uh, pop music on and uh, and enjoy it? What do you reckon? Give it up to baby Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a listen. I love this record. That brings back memories. So yeah, wow. so so uh, yeah, Jackson Five bringing back some serious uh, memories, uh, very early memories for uh, for Roger Sanchez. And so, how did it go on from there? How did you obviously had a real love for the vibration, the resonance of the music, and and you had an emotional attachment to it. So, but you're still really young, you know. How did this love grow, and what shapes did it take, and and who else was on the scene then? Well, interestingly enough, I think that at that time from the kind of ABC Jackson 5 early eras, I started really paying attention to different songs that were obviously whatever was coming on the radio, what we would see on TV. So funk and soul and even some of those early disco sounds. And I remember my my dad kind of playing some disco records, which I don't even remember the names of them now. I'm sure I have them, but I don't remember them especially from that particular time, except for the Donna Summer tracks. Those were things that I heard in the background that really always drew me to dancing very early on. And as I grew into a teenager, breakdancing, when that first came out, that was something that I got really into. I was collecting comic books and drawing comic books basically from age seven upwards. So art became very enmeshed with music in terms of what I would listen to when I would be drawing. As I got into my teenage years and then went to high school, the whole tapestry of what then started coming out of New York, which was early hip hop, had transitioned from 
kind of the funk and soul and disco and then breaks to early hip hop. And that had different subgenres in it. That for me was connected to me going out, break dancing with my friends, then which inevitably going to the high school of art and design led me to the graffiti world. So all of these things started really gelling together as one creative force, driving force in my life. Amazing and a, a very vibrant time to be in New York. Do you remember when you first saw somebody DJ? Like, you know, when the first, I don't know, school event or whatever it might have been? Actually, I had a friend of mine who lived in our building. We lived in, a, in, in an apartment projects in Queens. And one of the neighbors, one of my friends was a DJ. And I think I was about 13 years old at the time. He used to do these little sets in his apartment and he used to play different block parties. And then actually the very first time I ever played and I really started DJing was his parents went away for the weekend. Big mistake. <laughs> so the resident DJ decided to have a little house party in his apartment. That is a little disco lights, little system. And I just remember at one point in time in the party, he turned to me, he goes, listen, I'm going to go talk to this girl over here. Can you take over for me? Uh, you know, I, I know you, I know you like the music. You just, Take over for me while I go talk to this girl. And literally, my hands were shaking. I was like, sure. As I put the needle on that first track, and it was literally probably like, I can imagine drug addicts have this, this type of reaction. As soon as that needle hit the groove on the record and my control over it and mixing it in badly, that was like a rush. And quite literally, that was, I can pinpoint that moment as the moment where I said, I really, really enjoy this. This is something I think I could do, even though I was, you know, train wrecking that mix because I wasn't technically skilled. I understand, I understood it conceptually, even at 13 years old. And that's really where my whole career began. And do you remember the actual first record that you put in the the needle to the groove on, or do you, or do you rec- was it more of a bunch of different records around around that night? I remember it being, it was like kind of a early electro record. Okay, it might have been either Soul Sonic Force. Yeah, yeah. I might have been looking for the perfect beat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Might have been that track. I think it might. I know that was one of the tracks that I, that I played. But it might have been that might have been the first one looking for the perfect beat, well, which that's is a great kind of introduction, bad. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And then, do you remember the first time that you actually went into a, a proper club? Now, when I was thirteen years old, we had these between thirteen to sixteen. They used to be these skating rinks that used to do parties on the weekends. The first actual club that I went to was a skating rink. I believe it was called USA. I think it was called Club USA uh, or Skating Rink USA. It was in Queens. And I was about 15 at the time. And they used to have basically these kind of like teen dances on the weekend. And that was like the first proper club environment that I was actually in. Before that, it was like, you know, apartment block parties, house parties. But that was probably the first actual club I ever was into. 
And boy, I got into so much trouble because I came home as the sun was coming up and my mom was sitting in the living room waiting for me going, you nearly killed me. I, <laughs> I had a heart attack. I thought you were dead. I was going to call the cops. Oh, my word. My word. <laughs> and was that too early for like the break beats and b-boys and break dancing that was that happening at those that was right there because i was break dancing in these parties that was kind of <laughs> part of the thing i was going to these kind of, of skating rink parties and i was break dancing with with kind of like my boys we all had a little break dancing crew and and that was it man and then you know obviously talk trying to talk to girls and and i have to say i think i've been very blessed in terms of when i've grown up in this time period was really the birth and development of hip hop and dance music as we know it today. Being in the nexus of that scene in High School of Art and Design, which was a nexus for graffiti writers, uh, break dancers. It's kind of my life, a lot of, a lot of parts in my life feel like a movie just be, because of what I've lived through, you know, in terms of being in the right place at the right time at with the develop, birth and development of this culture. Hollywood, are you listening? <laughs> I, I think we're the, the same age, Roger, because I, and I, I feel the same thing. Very fortunate that we, just by luck, we just happened to be a certain age, didn't we, when uh, hip-hop culture for, and electro first exploded? And then we'll, we'll move on to the age that we both were when 88, 89, 90 came along in house music. But before we move down that line, pick another record that sums up for you that, that first sense of exploration and, and nightlife and all of the excitement that went with it. Let's have one of those electro records. Yes, absolutely. Well, this is one of the records that, interestingly enough, gave me both a, for a period of time, a graffiti name and a breakdancing name. And it was uh, by Quadrant Six called Body Mechanic. And my breakdancing name and my, D and my graffiti name was Mechanic, except I spelled it M-E-K-A-N-I-C. And it came from this track which was this electro record that I used to just throw down at those skating rink parties, Body Mechanic. So, Roger, were you going out like into New York and bombing and graffitiing, you know, walls and and subway carriages and what and getting into trouble and all that sort of stuff? Were you interfacing with it, with it in that old school way? Yeah, I kind of did my old my bit of rude boy, bad boy things. I definitely did a lot of walls. I bombed a few trains. I hit a hit a yard in my time, uh, but I predominantly did more like wall murals and sprayed kind of like um, more in, I wasn't always running from, from the cops in the train yard. I think I did that once, but more like bombing on the trains. And then I never got up, or what we used to call in graffiti, getting up was when you used to put your name uh, and you would see certain tags all over the city. I never went all city, it was more localized, but I definitely did a, quite a few murals and a, quite a few walls. And then a lot of black books, 
that was kind of more my focus. I was doing a lot of stuff on paper and on Blackbook. But being in the high school of art and design, graffiti, your graffiti skills had to be really on point because there were some serious writers in my school. What's Black Books? A Black Book is... I'll, you know what? I'll show you what a Black Book is. <laughs> so in the Black Book, you would do some graffiti. You would do your graffiti pieces. Uh, and the, the, there we go. And is that is the Black Book just for your own enjoyment or is this something that you would then publish? Well, this is something that for a lot of graffiti writers, what we would do is we would draw in our Black Books, work out some ideas, show it to other graffiti artists and get kind of critiques and so on and so forth and take some of those ideas and then put them up on a wall. Nowadays, I'm doing them on canvases. But that was the the kind of premise of having your black book. That's where you worked out your ideas. And then there was a place in uptown Manhattan, a bench, uh, which was called the writer's bench, which was literally a bench in a subway station where all these kind of top level graffiti writers would get together and compare black books and see whose style was better and so on and so forth. And that was one of the things that was kind of part of the subculture. And it was showing who's got the better styles and, you know, who's wild style. That's a particular style of graffiti where the, the letters are deconstructed and, and reconstructed in such a way that they're almost illegible, but you could make them out if you understand the kind of code that each of these, each of these letters were drawn in. That became very part, very much enmeshed and, and deeply rooted in the whole culture of hip hop as part of the art scene that, came along with it but it is its own scene there's such a lovely camaraderie about that and it's that's something that might be even missing in music culture you know you imagine musicians getting together and sort of showing having a book where they have all of their demos and and comparing their demos before they publish them you know they don't do that they don't have that really well they certainly didn't before the internet what's interesting about that is there is also quite a lot of rivalry in graffiti i mean i've known graffiti writers that have literally one guy shot another guy <laughs> over the fact that his name was a little too close the way he wrote it to this other graffiti writer's name as stupid as that sounds a guy named pj shot a writer called pg in front of my high school jesus i mean it's just you know so roger what i'd like to explore now is where the the music production thing came from and when you started to go yeah I enjoy playing records at parties and stuff like this but maybe I want to start making some records too well interestingly enough I seem to say that a lot uh what was happening with me is at this time I was DJing quite a lot of house parties a lot of block parties I was getting hired to do these kind of town hall events and this was uh my early days of 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 DJing from my high school, then going on to college. And at that point in time, I was also going with friends of mine. Then I started going to some of the clubs in Manhattan. I had friends of mine who were members of the Loft, who were members of the Paradise Garage. And I remember being at the Paradise Garage and listening to Larry Levan drop Frankie Knuckles' Baby Wants to Ride. And that just kind of clicked something for me like, Oh, wow. I could do that. I had a friend of mine in Queens who had a little production set up in his basement. And I remember wanting to have some beats that only I had that I could play on a reel-to-reel. As I saw some of my other friends, they had some reel-to-reels of like unreleased records. When I heard Baby Wants to Ride, 
that just kind of something clicked in my head in the sense of understanding what was happening within the track and thinking, I, if I use a drum machine and I can create something of my own that I can play. Because at that point in time, Larry Levan was playing it on a reel to reel. I don't think it was actually released at that point in time yet. Right. We're kind of like 1987, are we? I guess, maybe? I believe so. I yeah, believe roundabout. So. I, believe I, I believe he was playing it. It was, it might have been 1986. Could actually. be 86, maybe. You know, when he, but because I know, I know the record wasn't out. I just remembered the first place I heard it was Paradise Garage. And I was like, what the hell is this track? And, and then later on, I found out it was Frankie Knuckles' Baby Wants to Ride. But, but listening to that track made me go, okay, I think I could do this because I'd already started going to my friend's house and kind of seeing him do some productions. And that really kind of drove me into saying, okay, I want to start doing my own beats. And so like right around 1987 and then 88, I started going into my friend's kind of basement and, you know, working with his TR 707 and 909, Juno 106 keyboard and coming up with my own, with my own tracks, kind of my own little ideas and sketches. Brilliant. Let's hear Frankie Knuckles, Baby Wants to Ride, and then we're going to dig more into those uh, early days productions. It's fascinating stuff. Let's uh, listen to uh, Frankie Knuckles. Baby Wants to Ride. How did that react when you heard that in the uh, Paradise Garage? Obviously, uh, Larry had been dropping it before that because the entire crowd literally erupted as soon as they heard that. When it first hit. And the thing is, the Paradise Garage sound system was just unmatched. It was a it was Richard Long quadraphonic sound system. He would do things that make sound run around the speakers around the room where it would like literally cut off from one speaker to the next. I think he had a joystick that he was doing it. Come to like this little speaker over the stage where the sound would just just go there for like one beat, and then he would drop the entire sound on the dance floor with the bottom end which was like punching you in your chest. It was ridiculous. That was kind of one of the things that impacted me when that track dropped. Oh, yeah. No, we're lucky that we both managed to uh, check a bit of Paradise Garage out. Maybe we were even in the same room on the same night. It's possible. Summer of 87, I was there. It is quite possible. (laughs) It is quite possible. (laughs) It could be. It could be. Stranger things have known. So then you start... You're in the studio and you, with your buddy in Queens, you're making some records. Then, yeah, what happens next? You finish a, a record, a, a demo or something? Well, actually, I'd finished a rough demo. And at that point in time, I was also a Billboard reporting DJ, which means that I would submit my charts for the Billboard dance charts. I had started promoting my own events in, in Manhattan as well as Queens, but then I started focusing on Manhattan and I took one of those demos, and I, during that period of time, I would go to the different labels like Strictly Rhythm, Quark Records was in the same building, and I would go pick up vinyl from them to get my promos earlier. 
I took one of those demos to Curtis Urbina, who was the owner of Quark Records. Lovely guy, actually. Yeah, yeah. Very I've nice known. chap. Yeah, I know. And, and uh, also one of the, I believe he's on the board of Naris. And one of the tracks that I had done, Curtis was listening to my demos. He wasn't particularly impressed, but it, there came a breakdown in one of the tracks that I had done where the track just changed to something else. And he said, you know what? I really like that break. Why don't you take that break and create a full track out of that break area? And I then went back to my friend's studio, produced the first track that I released called Dream World. And I was doing events under the name Ego Trip at that point in time. So I took the name of Ego Trip, created my own little logo for it, and then kind of did my first release as my own first imprint, which was called Outer Limits Records, which Curtis released the first release on Outer Limits Records of Dreamworld. I had my voice on the track. It was very kind of, uh, I, I heard it became very popular kind of in the North, like Scotland, very kind of almost, almost like techno. So right. it's kind of like my first house record was a techno record, but I did a lot of swinging beats on it. Literally from that point in time after... I've Curtis released that record in the same building was Strictly Rhythm Records. And that's when I met up with Gladys Pizarro. And Gladys said, Hey, I really like, I heard you're the guy that did that, that Dream World record. And I'm like, Yeah, because I really like that record. I want to put you in the studio to do something for us, kind of on that vibe. I said, Okay, cool. So she put me in the studio and I came up with an EP. And one of the tracks that were on that EP was my, pretty much my first breakout record. And I released that under the name Underground Solution, and it was Love Dancing. Mm. And that really set fire to everything that I was doing from that point on. Yes, yes. Well, we're going to listen to Underground Solution, Love Dancing in, in a moment. I presume this record was big at those ego trip parties that you were, you were running? The first person who actually really broke that record for me was um, Tony Humphreys. And oh, what right. happened was he was doing, I believe it was like the anniversary of Zanzibar, where he had his main residency in New Jersey. And the test, he had just gotten the test pressing of the record. And Tony played that record five times that night. Oh, wow. <laughs> Were you there? Why, Were you I there was not. No, I oh. was not. Shame. What happened was, the week afterwards, that record just completely exploded and everyone at Strictly Rhythm was like, Tony played this track and everybody was like, what is this track you got me love dancing that he just played? That's really what took off for me. And then that record then became a massive record, not only at Ego Trip, but in all the clubs in New York City. And then, you know, was picked up and licensed in the UK. I believe it was by Virgin at the time which kind of really started my whole touring to the UK period in time. And everything that followed, man. I love hearing about breakthrough moments. It's wonderful stuff. Let's, let's listen to the record. Underground Solution, Love Dancing.
Roger, had you switched to your own name then, or did you have to do a rebrand? So here's what here's what happened. So prior to that, my productions were going out as the name Roger S. Right. So uh, Underground Solution was produced by Roger S. That was the kind of that was a name that I was known for in New York City. People used to know me as Roger S. I didn't pull the full Sanchez thing out because I really didn't want to let people kind of latch on to any ethnicity uh, to my name or not. I just wanted it to be Roger S. And let the music kind of speak for itself, kind of pre-Daft Punk with the masks. What happened was when the record was released in the UK, they took the publishing information and put produced by Roger Sanchez. And it was the UK that basically outed my name as Roger Sanchez. And that's from Love Dancing on afterwards, anything as the UK dominated the whole house music spectrum because it was so popular there. That's really where my popularity as Roger Sanchez started. In New York, for years, people just knew me as Roger S. And then the changeover happened where Roger Sanchez just became so much more prevalent that I kind of put Roger S. on the shelf. What's interesting is if you speak to some of the old school New York guys and you listen to some of the records that were produced at that period of time of the 90s, where there was a lot of tracks that were name-checking their DJs that were supporting the music scene, you'll hear people go, Roger S. They're actually talking about me. And that's very much a New York thing. New York, New Jersey producer in that 90s period. And then after that, it was Roger Sanchez around the world. That's very interesting because, of course, you know, in the UK and in Europe, I'm sure, you know, the, the name Sanchez, is there's no baggage to it. There's, there's, it's, it's there's, a very it's popular very last name. It's a very, <laughs> well, it, but it's a, it's a kind of a glamorous, you know, it has a positive connotation. So are you saying that you didn't use your name because you felt as though people would look at you negatively? Like, is there a, a racism conversation here? Like, did you, did you feel as though you would be looked at negatively because of some kind of, kind of systematic societal racism going on? It wasn't so much the racism as it was what I wanted to do was to not color the reception of the style of music that I was making by any predisposition to my ethnicity and therefore a musical heritage that would be ascribed to it. So if I wanted to make a techno record, a dark record, an R&B soul record, you really didn't know where that was coming from. It kind of forced you to listen to the music. That was my concept in the very beginning. There are definitely societal implications with, you know, my Latin ethnicity in terms of racism in in the United States and, and in different parts of the world. That wasn't so much my concern as it was taking away from, if you hear the name Sanchez, you're kind of going to expect Latin beats. Now, that became part of the lexicon of my production as time went on. When I first came out, I was so very much kind of like this child of the underground that I just wanted to focus on those underground beats. And I didn't want you to know whether I was white, black, Latino, it didn't matter. It was all about the house beats. So it was kind of more to take any preconceptions away from what the music would sound like. Right. You didn't want any uh, any prejudging, any prejudice, I guess, literally. Exactly. No predisposition, no prejudice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. That's a noble, pure thing. So, Roger, I wanted to, to just dive in briefly on this one. I wanted to hear about your first impressions when you started flying into the UK. So we're kind of early 90s, I suppose. Do you remember which year you first touched down in the UK to play in? The very first years that I went to the UK was 1990, I believe. Yeah. 
pretty hot on the back of Love Dancing coming out. Right, right on the back of Love Dancing. My very first tour to the UK was me, Todd Terry, Miss Moneypenny, and I forget who else was on the tour. But that was my very first tour was my tour was, was with none other than Todd Terry. Wow. Uh, and that was my, you know, sitting in the back of a freaking mini driving from Scotland to London. <laughs> That's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the, but the funniest one was Todd was really pissed off at the promoters. I guess they hadn't paid him. So <laughs> I'm sitting in, in this mini and Todd is in the back behind the promoter, and he just kept punching the back seat of the the head of the back seat of the promoter. Like, better give him my freaking money. Better give him my freaking money. Oh, Bitch, better have my money. <laughs> my word. And 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 what about the crowds though? What about the reception that you got from British clubbing audiences? I mean, the the amazing thing was the sheer kind of uh abandoned that the UK crowds had they would they were just loving the music and so bang into the beats and it, it was like people would just surrender themselves on the dance floor and really let go and it was something that coming from New York the New York club scene was also very was very discerning and very kind of hypercritical but the dancers on the floor would go for it so that's the thing that would remind me of New York but the broader spectrum of the UK was everybody was so into it and they were so grateful to have talent coming in from the US to play these records that I guess they'd been listening to and 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 getting that full kind of New York sound. Were you aware of the uh, the spectrum of UK crowds? Like speaking as someone who's coming from a from a band's background, you know, you you definitely get used to there's this adage that the further away from London, in other words, the more north you go, the the crowds get crazier and crazier until you get to Scotland, and then the roof blows off. I I, I experienced that on my very <laughs> so, quite literally, but I, but it was the first because we wound up going Midland. Uh, I think the first place, the first town I ever played was Blackpool. <laughs> well, that's a party town. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there's a party town for you. It was a bit. It was a bit dark. As we went further north, the crowds were just going for it, going for it. And then we came down to London and the crowds kind of were a lot more cooler than thou at that point in time. Still into it, but definitely a lot more. uh, I think people were kind of nodding their heads a little bit more and kind of going, okay, impress me. Whereas in the north, people were just going ape. Um, I actually uh, mentioned online that uh, we were going to be chatting this afternoon and a DJ actually said, yeah, tell Roger if he remembers a a kid who was sort of in Hull in 1993, a little bit off it, you know, staring at the wall for most of his set and (laughs) da-da-da-da-da. This was just the most amazing thing and and all the rest of it. I said, I may may mention that, but I presume there's been many, many of those. There's been many. (laughs) There's been many decades. That that I've seen people like that. I, I don't know if it was just hull. <laughs> so, yeah, and, yeah and a, a guy staring at the wall. You're going to have to narrow the field down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they they were very they were very exciting times, and you really hit your stride then, Roger, didn't you? During the '90s, as we got into the sort of '93, four, five, six, this era, era, you know, the some of those big clubs really embraced you closely. Those there, there were periods where you seemed to be in and out of the UK very, very regularly. I mean, I, there were times when I would spend months at a time in the UK, either at a, at a flat or at a service department in London and then touring around. I kind of felt 
like I became more, almost more British during that period of time. And, and, and it started showing because prior to that, I had gone through an extremely intense. So from the 90s to like, let's say 1990 to like 1995, I went through an, ex, uh, 1996, I went through an extremely intense period of remixing where I was spending so much time in the studio creating remixes that basically Monday through Friday, I'd be in the studio turning out remixes and then I would go away on the weekend. And then as the 90s wore on, I found myself spending more time in the UK doing some of these remixes over there, being in the studio there. And then there came a point where people back in New York were like, oh, I, I heard you moved to London. <laughs> I was like, no, no, I still have my apartment here in Queens. But, you know, I'm just over there a lot. And what did you, what did you like? Because you must have experienced British culture quite profoundly. What did you like about it? And what were, well, and what were the negative aspects of it? What did you like and not like about being here? I, I loved the immersion into the art of music and the, the art scene in the UK, and especially London. There were parallels to New York. London is, to me, the closest city to New York that I've been to in the world. The difference is definitely food, because <laughs> at that point in time, now it's come a long way. I've got to say, London now is this, this top it's top notch with food, but back in the nineties, uh, yeah, not, really so good. Wasn't, yeah. not, not so good. So a lot blander on the palate, but you know, I think that what i what the parallels were was London is very multicultural, but it's different cultures. You have more Indian culture, more, um, cross European culture in London and in New York, you've got more Latin American and different parts of the world. So there are quite a lot of parallels. And I really love that cultural aspect of London, the museums, the art scene, the music scene. People are very competitive in the music scene as they are in New York. But there's a lot, there was seemed to be more support. And at least for me, especially at that point in time, I was getting so much love and support in the UK, even more than I was getting in New York, that that made it that much more appealing for me to be there. And was there one particular neighborhood in London that you were uh, that you became a part of? Uh, at that point in time, I had a manager named Mart Sanders, who unfortunately passed away in '95. But I was staying a lot at his place, which was in um, near All Saints Road, actually. Oh so right, it was the, West London. The, the West London. So I, it, it was West London, mate. Yeah, <laughs> West is best. So it's so West London. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a well, there's a yeah. There's I spent about ten years there. A lot of a lot of hip hop inspired graffiti. Oh yeah, beat graffiti guys around Trellick. A lot of council estates there that sort of pride themselves on down the Old Saints Road, and then you know <laughs> go up to the Portobello Market on the weekend. Go to on go to uh, what was it Honest John's? Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> yeah, that's before it all. That's before it gentrified. You know, you saw it when it, when it was the front line. Just after I, it was the front line. I saw line. front line. I saw front line. <laughs> yeah, I got and, mugged uh, there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen them yarding them bad boy there. You know. Yeah, yeah. I got, <laughs> I got mugged on the All Saints Road. So yeah, uh, sorry about that. No, that. That's I just call that. That's called the rite of passage. <laughs> yeah, where absolutely. I grew up. <laughs> These things happen. So I tell you what, uh, you had this incredible run of remixing. I, I remember it well, Roger, because when I was running Positiva, you'd be first uh, port of call for some of the records we were releasing. I remember Judy Cheeks and Judy Cheeks, whatever. Yeah. You know, we'd work on those records and we'd send them to you, and you know, and we just knew that we were going to get great quality, a great Thank quality you. result. We have no doubt. It's just like let's, if we want a top quality job done. Go to Roger. That's what it was like. And that's one of the reasons that I think you built up this, you know, sort of reputation. And obviously then you 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 
you had your Grammy winning moment. Do, do you remember much of that? So with the Grammy, the thing that stood out for me about that was I had been nominated once prior when the category was of a remixer as opposed to one particular work. The second time I was nominated, it was for a remix that I had done. The track was called Hella Good. That was for the band No Doubt. And what's his name? Um, Nelly Hooper, perhaps? Nelly Hooper. So Nelly and I had clicked and I had gone to Nelly's house in, in, in London and we'd been really cool. He actually called me up several months prior and said, listen, Roger, I've, I'm, I've been producing the No Doubt record and we've got the single called Hella Good. I think you're the perfect person to remix it. And I was like, oh, I'd be honored. That remix was what I won the Grammy for. So I was very indebted to Nelly for putting me forward for that track and always showed him a lot of love for that. And that was, to me, almost like a culmination of the recognition for the work I'd been doing on a lot of the remixes. And then, uh, and then afterwards, in the 2000s, came the actual first number one record that I had. Well, we've got we've got to talk about that. Yes. So, so that's a uh, you know you've we'll got, come to that. <laughs> well, you know what? Let's let's get into it because this is this is another enormous moment for you. Another chance. How did that record come about? I had been signed prior to that to Sony when they had their dance division to produce an album. They literally said, "We we love the work you've been doing. We want to sign an album from you." I didn't have any demos or anything, so I got busy producing the album. In the time that it took me to actually create the album, the Sony dance label folded. Um, they kind of phased that label out. Simon Dunmore stepped in since he had already um, left Chrysalis and started his label Defected. And he said, you know what? I'd love to be able to take this project on. I played him the, what I was working on. And then he A&R'd me for the completion of that album. So Sony had the album for the UK. Defected picked it up. And literally the last track that I produced on the album was, was Another Chance. And funny enough, I was like, you know what this album needs? I think I need an underground track for the album. <laughs> really? Was that the start point for the number one single saying, uh, as, I need to do something more underground here? As it, were, as it worked out, that was my thought process wow. when I started the track. Wow, okay. Very and interesting. And I had... I had gone record. Sh I always went like my beat mining. I called. I'd go to different record shops and I have and pick up these old records. And I was in Montreal and I picked up a stack of records. One of which was Toto. I was going through just kind of mining for samples and I found the sample from Toto. And just that line of "If I had another chance tonight" was so bittersweet that I wound up creating a track around that riff. And I had no idea that it was going to do what it did. And then this has kind of been the story of my life. When you least expect it, these things really do take off. But as always, I just went with what my flow was, what my vibe was, what I was feeling. That record literally transformed the... Uh, it became the very first record that Defected had, had their number one with. That was their very first number one record. It was my first number one record as an artist. And... The When I knew I had something special was I was actually playing at Pacha in London when they had it in Piccadilly uh, Circus. And that was one of the tracks that I dropped during the night. And it was um, still on test press. 
five different women ran up to me and was like, what is that record? And I was like, oh, when the girls ask you for the track, <laughs> yeah, because women are great barometers for a record that's going to crack through. Yeah. And they were like, what is that record? And I, no less than five of them asked me. And quite literally after that is when the whole thing started ramping up. There's a couple of interesting aspects to Another Chance. One is that that line is from the verse. So the Toto record has a completely different chorus and you're just yep. like, nah, not interested in uh, in that. And you, you just took a bit of the record that maybe, you know, people hadn't appreciated as much. And then the other thing that's interesting is that the the, the Toto record that you sampled didn't really mean that much in the UK, like it hadn't been a smash before. So it wasn't that everybody was going, oh, it's it's the, you know, the, the Toto sample, I love that. I don't think that was happening here in the UK. No, people, not at all. Yeah, people were just going, I love that record. But I think to a lot of, I'm going to say us, including myself, I actually had no idea what the, you know, the kind of derivation of that hook was until I kind of looked into it. So Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because, you know, I, I, everyone loves you know, Africa. Eddie? No, I mean, we all love Africa and hold the line, but, you know, who yep. knew that that was a Toto sample on that record? We didn't. We had no idea, did we? I can tell you one thing. Steve Lukather is definitely very happy about the money he got from that record. <laughs> <laughs> they, they wound up taking 90% of the publishing, just so yeah. you know. Yeah, but no, it, I can. God, yeah, it, it, it is what it is. The thing was that that particular... The sentiment of that line is what resonated with me. And what I've always gone with is I, I always want anything that I do to have a, to evoke something emotionally, whether it's happiness, sadness, darkness, you know, lose your mind, lose your nut. It has to mean something emotionally to me. And that particular line just touched on something for me. Yeah. And you reflected it in the video as well. It was a video that kind of pulled on the heartstrings, the very big, big, big heartstrings. <laughs> yeah, <huge. laughs> I, I have to give the credit to the video director, Philippe. He's the one who came up with the concept of the shrinking heart. And I was just blown away by what he what he came up with. I was like, wow, this is amazing. So I, have, I, I, I wish I could claim the credit for the storyline on that one. That was all Philippe. It was just one of those things. It all came together. It felt like the the right record at the right time. The visual aspect was good, and and uh, yeah, it was a, a magical moment in in your career. And um, and and it's a brilliant record. Can we stick it on, Roger? Let's do it. Let's do it. So that's the moment where all the stars aligned for you. You know, you had the perfect sample, the perfect use of it, the perfect video. Everybody now knew who you were. So was it all downhill from there, Roger? <laughs> <laughs> it actually started ramping up in a in a crazy way. I think my first experience of what 
an actual pop stardom thing is like was with me doing the media tour for that and having to go to the morning shows, being on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. It was very, very trippy and surreal for me. A DJ being in these kind of places that I'd you know seen pop stars. And the next one that I had done was a, a collaboration I did with Armand Van Helden and India Davenport called You Can't Change Me, which I actually performed on top of the pops because I didn't perform another chance. I performed uh, You Can't Change Me on top of the pops with them. And that era then exploded into a much broader touring, much because the record exploded in Europe. It had, you know, resonance. It, it, it wasn't released at the time in America, funny enough, because I'd kept America. The, the, my deal was with Sony Europe. And then I'd done a deal later on. But the reach of that record was so broad that it really just expanded everything for me. And that's really what took me to a different place. And, and, and then it shifted from me having done a ton of remixes to being more focused on creating original material and then touring intensely. That's what I call my, the beginning of the touring hamster wheel. Yeah. One thing that I like to ask people who, who are DJs or performers, I also like to hear about some of the happiest moments that they've had up on stage playing records. Is, is there a record that you think of playing out, you know, on your club tours, on your festival stages where you think, yeah, I've just had some really, truly amazing, mind-blowing moments playing at this particular record in, in those environments? I know it would have been easy for me to kind of just go with another chance because that's kind of one of the ones that tends to have that reaction for me. But one of the other tracks that for me became an anthem during my residencies in Ibiza, first in At Space and then El Divino and then Pacha, was uh, Kings of Tomorrow featuring Julie McKnight, finally, which is just... The elements of that track are simple, but again the emotion that you feel when you hear Julie's vocal. And I've been very uh, fortunate and blessed to work with Julie McKnight on some tracks and I'm working on some stuff with her now. But that song just connects directly with my heart. And every time I play it, the audience reaction is euphoric. I've seen people, you know, cry when I play that record. So it's, it's just a very uplifting song to play. Yeah. And it's definitely one of my favorite ones to play. And and I suppose, you know, that record, you you really were, you know, you'd got to a very global phase by now, right? So this is probably a record yes. that you've played in almost every continent and whatever. Probably one of the most striking memories I have is playing that as the closing track for one of my closing parties at my Release Yourself residency at Pacha in Ibiza. And I think it was, I played it, either the the last year that I was in Pacha or the previous year as my last record of the season. And that was just, you know, everyone completely lost it at about eight, eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> amazing, amazing. Look, let's, let's hear that record now.
So the one thing that we ask every esteemed guest is is to pick a tune to literally save the planet in a in a scenario where uh, aliens have landed and they are uh, perhaps not uh, predisposed to liking us. You've got to imagine they're they're not the most benevolent uh, space creatures, and you've got to play them a song that will that will stay their hand. You know, a song to literally save the world. What would you play to the aliens to make them think that the human race is worth saving? You know. Um... This is definitely not the easiest uh, choice to make, but I think to get an alien race to not destroy us as as you know violent and as and as destructive a species as we are, I, I like to think that we could show them the hope that we can grow beyond the kind of lesser the, the lesser demons that we have and 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 grow to our better angels. And probably the song that I think that speaks to this hope it would be one of the wonderful artists that have come out of the amazing musical history from the UK is John Lennon's Imagine. And I think that that song, more than almost any other song that I've heard, speaks to hope in the face of probably the you know one of the more darker periods that we went through. But it speaks to the hope and the possibility of us being able to come together in a peaceful, unified place as as a species. And maybe that's something that would prevent the aliens from from blowing us up and say, you know what, let's give them another chance. Let's uh, it looks like they still have hope. Yeah, you know what? And it's, there's actually something rather poetic and uh, moving about the fact that you've chosen a track by John Lennon, you know, arguably greatest songwriter in the world and a man who fell in love with your home city of New York and lived yes. and then died there. Yes, unfortunately, I'm sorry he had to die in New York, but I am happy that he actually spent some time and happy years there. Okay, the wonderful Imagine, John Lennon. So, Roger, let's bring it right up to the uh, present moment. Musically, what are you working on? What have you got coming out? What's exciting you at the moment? Well, right now I'm working on my artist album. Uh, I think it's um, overdue. And now that I've actually had some time to sit down and kind of collect my thoughts, I've been focusing on that. Just quickly, with your artist album, will will the bits and pieces that have been floating about recent, like your your Ella Henderson collab, will that have a place on on this album? Uh, the Ella Henderson collab, I believe, will have a place on the album. But I've been doing a lot of um, there's a lot of new material. I still haven't decided what I want to include since I'm in the process of working on it. And there's some things that haven't been put out yet that I have that I've been working on over the past couple of years that I think will fit. I've actually done working on a collab with Mel C and a couple of other artists that I'm 
not going to say too much yet until it all comes together. I only said Mel C because I actually have her vocals. <laughs> no, she's she's a, she's lovely, and and she's lovely. I've been I've done some collabs with guys like Jackie, which I'm going to be dropping that as an underground kind of track on my label this year. My girlfriend Kristen Knight, she's doing. Um, I I'm trying to describe what her album kind of leans to, but it's the best I could compare it to closer to. It's like an artist like Banks, like that type of space. I'm collaborating with her on her project. And just doing a lot of songwriting at the moment. And I've done a couple of remixes. So probably I'm going to be focused more on the productions, but I do have a couple of remixes that I'm working on. Great. Is there is there anything that you could select for us to have a, a listen to that sort of sums up kind of where you're at at the moment? And Well, one of the ones that have just recently been released is a remix that I did for Wolf Story called Waiting For You. And that I've kind of come back to some of my classic elements of the more soulful sound with a much more current jacking, driving energy. And I think the Wolf Story track just kind of feels right. It feels like it could be played back in 1990 or today in 2021. Roger, it's been fantastic to uh, spend some time with you today. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, man. Thanks for having me. And it's great to see you again, Nick. Good to meet you, Eddie. And uh, hope to see you guys very, very soon in person. That would be wonderful. It was an honor, man. It was very interesting catching up with you. Lovely to uh, to feel that pulsation of your lovely, uh, lovely big heart, man. You're a big hearted you. person. You've got a big Dominican Thank heart. You. An absolute pleasure. My pleasure, guys. Speak soon. Cheers. It's a true honour for me and Nick to talk to such wonderful music pioneers. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And we really appreciate it if you drop a review. It helps us, it helps our sponsor, it makes this whole thing sustainable. And thank you to Skiddle for helping make this happen.